You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 53, Marks and the Coup, with Matt Christman. Thanks for joining me. Last episode, we covered the aftermath of the coup of 18 Brumaire. The directory was gone, replaced by the consulate. Napoleon had finally risen to power. We closed out with a discussion of the long-term consequences of the coup, why it was a seminal moment in modern political history, not just in our story. As I said last time, almost everyone since 18 Brumaire has lived in the shadow of the coup. That is especially true for anyone influenced by the writings of the German radical thinker Karl Marx. For Marx, the coup was not only an historical event, but an illustration of much broader political trends. As Marxist thought grew and propagated in the years after Marx's death, his ideas about Brumaire spread with it transforming the coup from a discrete historical event into an intellectual concept with a life of its own. To help us unpack Marx and the Brumaire coup, I've invited back an old friend, Matt Christman, who you might remember from our bonus episode about Marx and Napoleon III. So, Matt Christman, welcome back. Thank you for having me back. So, why don't we just dive right in what does Bonapartism mean in Marxist jargon? Bonapartism is the da- – it's really a danger. It's something that they were always worried about happening and, uh, and in the Soviet Union ended up uh, accusing each other of all the time. And it is that point at which a revolution reaches a point of instability where it's no longer able to move forward under its own uh, energies in a way that maintains the social order and – to solve that issue, to solve the crisis of legitimacy and, and stability, uh, one military figure subsumes the entire revolution into themselves. Uh, and they saw Napoleon as the model for that, and uh, were always on the lookout for a Napoleon who was going to emerge in any of their movements. So that's um, Bonapartism, Brumaire, when you see that in Marx, that's what they mean, just kind of that, that general idea of... Uh, instability than being uh, resolved with a with a single leader, not so much Napoleon himself. Yeah, he's just sort of a stand-in for that. And honestly, I'd say that when you look at the specifics of the French Revolution, especially after Thermidor, there, I don't know if you can even argue that Napoleon's emergence is necessarily like a tragic betrayal the way that people saw Stalin's or something, because the bourgeois revolution at that point 
had sort of run its course. And we've talked on before when I was on here talking about Napoleon III, about how the original Napoleon was this syncretic figure who who resolved this tension that was existing between the, the left and the right and created a stable order based on that, uh, that fusion. And I was thinking about that and, and I think the way, and I was actually listening to your episode about, about uh, the coup itself and the aftermath that really made me think more about this. And, and in like, we talked about that broadly, you know, how that was, it was a, he was a guy who brought both sides together but I think specifically what he did is he, the, the two principles that he reaffirmed that were central to the project of the reactionary right and the Jacobin left were hierarchy on the right, which they had seen as being uh, the reason that things have been so chaotic was the lack of a, a king, right? I mean, they were all, they, they wanted a king back. And Napoleon, by embodying the nation in himself, gave them a figure who could reaffirm a hierarchy along the, the lines that they, they sought. But he did it on the terms of meritocracy. And I think meritocracy is really it's like the guiding principle of the bourgeois uh, revolutionary uh, movement that, that, the, that the left in, in France uh, represented. Uh, they were both because they were both class projects, the right was a, a class project of the reactionary landholders, and the left was a project of the more um, progressive bourgeois. What the revolution had proven was is that the model of hierarchy uh, uh, that the right had always endorsed, the notion of God-ordained rule, was no longer viable in, an, in the Enlightenment era, in an era of increasing secularism. Something, but something had to replace it, and since there was no, uh, since there was no way that the that the still not ex- really non-existent working class could claim power, the bourgeois was going to have to. They were the progressive class at the time. Then their hierarchical rule, their authority in society, had to have a justification, and it was high, it was uh, meritocracy. The original Napoleon is a fulfillment of these. These, this tension that couldn't be resolved elsewhere, right? There was no third force that could resolve the tension because the working class of Paris was tiny and exhausted. The peasantry was still inert. So there was going to be some sort of rapprochement between the sides. And Napoleon was basically the most perfect embodiment of that because he was the most meritocratic man in the history of France, right? Like, he was like the most smart, right, like yeah. he was the genius of his era, like, and he'd proven that, and he went on to prove it more and more. Mm-hmm. If anybody was going to be in charge of a, a a a syncretic state that had a a monarchical a, a hierarchy, but justified by by works rather than relationship to God, it was Napoleon. And that's what I think is so uh, such a funny thing about this uh, the concept in Marx is that it kind of gets at what you're talking about here, but uh, it's so much narrower, you know, the the closer you look at the actual events of Brumaire and their aftermath, uh, kind of the less Marxist conception of it makes sense. But the the Marxist theory does have some, you know, it does track with real life, um, just not so much in the specific historical event that he chose to tie it to. Because the French Revolution, as he 
was very aware of cast this pall over you know the 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 entire 19th century and everything everybody who was working in a revolutionary capacity was doing it in reference to this previous event regardless of the specifics of it and it took a long time for people to get out of that mindset i always think it's an interesting phenomenon the way people just you know it's always about everything is about kind of the last precedent you know, you go through French revolutionary history, you find people talking all the time about the English Civil War, which, you know, we call it a civil war. But, I mean, it was a class of people rising up and overthrowing the monarchy. That's really more of a revolution. Yeah, absolutely. And the people in France were aware of that. And that's what they looked to as their model. Right. And then people looked the French Revolution as a model until the Russian Revolution happened. And then people took that as a model, which many to to the same day. And what's so fascinating about this stuff is, you know, we can get very arcane. We're talking about these these grand theories. But, you know, Marx isn't just a philosopher because in the 20th century, people tried to put those theories into practice. And that really, you know, scientific socialism was what the the Soviets and their their allies believed in. They really did believe that this stuff... You know, it was like, uh, I mean, I think it was Engels who compared it to the theory of evolution. You know, they believed this stuff was concrete and uh, that you could apply it kind of more or less directly to real life. And that was really more Engels' uh, legacy than Marx's, personally. Uh, Marx was, or Engels was the guy who really went the extra mile in trying to codify socialism as a scientific process. Uh, Marx was a little more uh, circumspect on that point. Hmm. But, you know, I I love... um, you know, Soviet history is a big interest of mine, and it's always fascinating to me, you know, a, a really uh, seminal moment in Stalin's regime um, was uh, related to this, because Stalin, like most of the rest of the Bolsheviks, you know, was trying to put this stuff into practice. He believed that uh, Bonapartism, in the Marxist sense of the word, was a real threat. Not only that, he had a guy in mind uh, there was a guy in uh, who was a, a Red Army general named uh, Mikhail Tukhachevsky, who Stalin called Napoleonchik, which means little Napoleon oh. in Russian. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's there's a layer of – because they had a personal rivalry as well. So you could always have, you know, as anything with Stalin, you always have to wonder how much is personal paranoia and animus versus how much is, uh, you know, realpolitik or theory. Um, but – that was the framework Stalin used when he took out Tukhachevsky, and Tukhachevsky was arrested in 1937 and got a bullet. And that was one of the uh, high, well, not, not so much high points, yeah. I should probably say low points of, uh, of the Great Purges, which brought the uh, purges into the army uh, with devastating effect uh, in World War II, obviously. But, um, you know, I think it's always important talking about these theories that, um, you know, this is just an intellectual exercise. People really did this stuff in real life, informed by these ideas. Yeah, and uh, in the specific case of the Soviets, uh, it's certainly understandable because the, the, pro- the Civil War was this horrifying machine of death, obviously, and, but one of the unspoken side effects of it, or, or under-addressed side effects of it, is that it took the working class... With that coherent, powerful working class, which had won the revolution in the cities in Moscow and St. Petersburg in, in, in uh, October uh, of 1918, and, or 1917, uh, and basically destroyed it. The, the, the workers of, of the cities entered the Red Army and 
either died or ended up being absorbed into the military itself. And that was always supposed to be the prophylactic against the sort of military takeover, the, 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 the threat of Bonapartism in, in the theory of the Bolsheviks was that, well, we have the party. And the party is, is immune, essentially, by its structure and by its grounding in the working class to the takeover of an individual personality. But by the end of the Civil War, that working class had been largely shattered, and they were trying frantically to reconstitute it with pe- fresh the peasants coming in from the countryside and stuff. But the, mo- the most, as a result, as is usually the case when you have a, a, a war like that, the, the, the institution that, has, it's, that comes out of it most, uh, the, the, the only institution that comes out of it not destroyed, but in fact made stronger, is the military. And he was the, the, the shining star of that military. And as a result, I mean, I would say, I don't honestly know if I believe that Stalin ever really thought that Tukashevsky was, uh, was a real threat to do that, to, to, to pull a coup. Uh, I know that there was an accusation that he was uh, conspiring with uh, the Germans. There's also a, a, another argument that the Germans actually planted documents in order to get Stalin to uh, to arrest Tukhachevsky to eliminate uh, the, the best general that they had. But Stalin was paranoid enough that and, and, and jealous enough of power to not need that justification. But it certainly uh, is true that the Red Army was the only threat to the party uh, at that point. But the fact that they were able so easily to arrest and neutralize Tukhachevsky shows that even after the deprivations of the war, that the, the, the institutional buildup of, of the party made it relative made the system relatively immune to straight military takeover, and that's one of the reasons that Bonapartism specifically as as a as a concept is is it, over time became less uh, I would say relevant because the original Napoleonic coup was possible due to the relative lack of institutional legitimacy and uh, complexity of that era of, uh, in France, you know, like not the government obviously had very little legitimacy, but as a result of that, it had little, it had very little meat on its bones, you know, uh, mm-hmm. they, these were still very nascent political institutions. Uh, and as a result, they, they couldn't really stand up to any, any force as strong as the military, which was the only thing in France that was becoming stronger over the years and more, more legitimate in people's eyes, importantly. But over time, institutions, you know, as part of the, uh, the process that the French Revolution helped kick off of states becoming more centralized, uh, authority becoming more invested in durable uh, political and state institutions, those institutions make it harder for, uh, for one figure to come in on horseback. Yeah, it's funny, um, you know, as I was preparing this, uh, this uh, interview, I was reminded of uh, there's a movie I saw once, a Russian movie where a Russian character and a French character are talking about their, their country's histories. The, the French character mentions the, the directory, and the Russian character says, ah, the directory, well, we had the directory for 70 years, hmm. meaning the, the, the Soviet system. And um, I was thinking about that comment, because I don't think that quite tracks. And I, I think uh, what you were just talking about is kind of gets to the core of why that doesn't quite track, which is that the Soviet, the, the party and the... Uh, 
party ruling apparatus was so much stronger than the directory. Yeah. Um, and more durable and had deeper roots in the society. And basically that's just because, you know, like you said, time had passed and people had, you know, central authorities had gotten better at asserting their control over people and places. Absolutely. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So I think um, it's a good point to just kind of branch out and talk more generally about French politics of this era. When you look at France, I mean, you've listened to the show, you've, you know, you've read on your own about this stuff. When you look at France of this era, kind of what strikes you about the political climate? Uh, I mean, just the cynicism, really. Uh, just the, the exhausted cynicism of, of, of people who had seen for a moment what looked like the dawn of a new era of human relations that uh, had failed to come to fruition. Uh, and, and that cynicism, you know, it, it, it would track regardless of, of your beliefs. It, it was certainly, it applied to people who were horrified by the excesses of the terror. It certainly, and it even, it applied to people who thought that the terror was justified because either way you saw a just guttering out of idealism in the face either of the totalitarianism of the Committee of Public Safety or in the cynical opportunism of the directory that followed. and and the systematic breakdown of uh, the networks that had allowed for the street power to briefly exist. Like that, that was the real fundamental fact of the, the early revolutionary era was that on a moment's notice, huge crowds could come into the administrative capital of, of France and dictate terms. And uh, over time, it wasn't just an exhaustion and it wasn't just the war. There was an effort by the Jacobins themselves and those that came after to systematically reduce to, and annihilate the system of committees and local authorities that could draw those people out. It, it, was, it was gutted from within and from without. 
And no matter where you were on the on the uh, on the social on the spectrum of politics, you saw a, a, a revolution that was essentially a zombie, and that I think more than anything uh, explains how Napoleon was able to take power relatively easily, considering how badly he performed on the day itself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, boy, that's you know, it's obviously I've seen this story a, a million times, but going over it, preparing for those episodes, like. The deeper you get in, just the more kind of pathetic, really, uh, Napoleon's performance seems. It's just, it's really remarkable that he was able to pull that off. Yeah, thank God for Lucian. <laughs> right. That, I think, takes us naturally into the, the uh, kind of the meat of what I wanted to talk to you about today, which is um, historians love this question of when did the French Revolution end? And a lot of people say 18 Brumaire, and you know there's good reasons to say so, but it's a pretty hotly debated question. So I wanted to see where you come down on that. I don't want to. I've been thinking about this because I knew you were going to ask me about it, but I don't, and I don't want to feel like I'm sort of skipping or like uh, evading it. But I really feel like it depends on whether you want to talk about inside France or outside France. Because I'd say that if you're talking about within France itself, like the, the forward progress of revolutionary movement, you know, towards a new system, I would honestly say that Thermidor is as good a place as any to end it. Because the people who carried out Thermidor were, and this is often the, pro, the, the case when you have a revolution that starts eating itself, the survivors are the most cynical, least idealistic people left. Because the people who had, who had convictions ended up saying something that got them killed. And so as soon as, as the guillotine comes down on Robespierre's neck, uh, for whatever you think of him, that that energy is diffused. Because as I was saying, the, 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 the power of the mob, the mob had already sort of been broken by the purge of the Aberists. And all that was left was for the directory to play their awful cynical game of whack-a-mole from one side of the spectrum to the other. But I would say, but then I think about internationally, and, you know, the reason the French Revolution is, is the most studied thing in history, basically, is because of its international repercussions, right? The way that it sparked, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, you can't understand anything else that happens in the modern era without the French Revolution. I mean, we don't have nationalism, which was the defining movement of 19th century Europe without uh, the French Revolution. With that in mind, I honestly think it's uh, Waterloo. Because Napoleon's army, wherever it marched, it destroyed feudal systems. It, it tore up the decaying uh, vestiges of, of the old uh, order. I mean, I, I, it still amazes me. I mean, this is not, I, that, that the rules of the Doges of Venice, of the, the Knights of St. John in Malta, and the emperors of the Holy Roman Empire, institutions that had existed for centuries, and in one case a millennia, were all destroyed by one dude. <laughs> And, and I think about guys like the Hunt Circle in, in England, you know, like the, the, that circle of, of young, uh, young uh, literary critics uh, who were absolutely disgusted by the, uh, the nastiness and, 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 uh, and exploitation uh, and, and stultifying culture of Regency England, that they were all rooting for Napoleon all the time. <laughs> it reminds me of us whenever we on Chapo talk about how we want a President Xi to show up and liberate <laughs> us from this nightmare. Uh, so like, as long as Napoleon was in power, regardless of the fact that he was trying to re-entrench a, uh, a imperial system with his family as the ruling uh, class of Europe, the, the way that it's his army, wherever it went, 
fundamentally altered centuries-old systems, did things like end serfdom where it existed, did things like emancipate Jews wherever it came, impose the, the Napoleonic Code in a standardized legal system. Uh, I feel like that can't be ignored no matter how much Napoleon ended up being a figure who arrested the, the revolutionary process in, in France itself to the degree that it still existed. Mm. Well, it's interesting because I, I put some thought into this as well. And I should say we did not compare notes about this beforehand, but we came to very similar conclusions because my thinking is basically you can you can look at the end of the, this question of the end of the revolution three ways. Uh, the first, if you think of the revolution as kind of a mass based process to radically change society, I think no question that that's over with the death of Robespierre. No subsequent French government was trying to, com- you know, completely transform the way people lived their lives and the way the country was governed. Uh, you know, the Directory, Napoleon were much more interested in entrenching things that had come about in that early period of the revolution than they were in actually, you know, further further social change. Um, if you look at the revolution in terms of kind of uh, political upheaval and the question of who rules being an open question, well, that probably did end with Brumaire because, mm-hmm. um, you know, under the directory, you know, yet we call that whole period the directory, but there's all these coups and um, sort of quasi coups going on that it's it's still too unsettled, I would say, to call that a new status quo, um, and that that doesn't really come into come into being until Napoleon's been in charge for a little while. Then the third way to look at it would be kind of the most macro level, you know, how it affected the rest of the world, kind of what were the ideological, what were the values of the regime, um, and that I think you can't say uh that period you can't really say is over until waterloo um just because you know as long as there's uh you know blue jacketed armies out there in the field who are you know freeing serfs and imposing enlightenment principles uh, that's a little too revolutionary to say you know that's just part of the way things had been before um yeah exactly and then of course if you want to get really contrarian I think the the ultimate kind of provocative, annoying, pedantic answer is the French Revolution never ended, and because ah, we're still living with course. it. Too soon to tell. <laughs> right, right. I mean, I think with so much, it's funny because I've had two different guests bring up that Hegel quote, um, the famous uh, you know history on horseback. History quote. on horseback, yes. Um, and I think you, know, you really get down to it. That is just the best. You know, what's it all mean? What's, you know, what, what's the point of this show other than entertaining people? Yeah. Um, I think that is really what it comes down to, history on horseback. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's, if you want to see how one individual works within a system and within the, the, the flow of history and, and, and the, the, the tide of, of social and technological and, and spiritual and economic change, that's, that's what you look at. And, you know, it's it's a hard thing to square with. Uh, and I've actually seen uh, Marxist historians kind of openly grapple with this, you know, because the Marxist conception of history is, you know, to use one of his favorite buzzwords, it's materialist. It's all about kind of forces, particularly economic forces. Um, and it can be hard to square with this era because, you know, that great man era of, of uh, historiography is sort of over. But, I mean... We're talking about an era in which one man did have a tremendous influence. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, there's another Marx quote though that I think is also uh, relevant here. Men make their own history, but they don't make it on their own terms. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and I because I think that the me- mechanical view that gets as- ascribed to Marx and that some Marxists even embrace, I don't think that is that's not it's too brittle really to use to really confront history. Uh, and I think that that it's a good heuristic and it's an important thing because because especially talking about a guy like Napoleon, it's incredibly easy to get carried away in, <laughs> in, in a personality just because of how incredibly powerful that personality is. But and I think your show is doing a great job of this. You are at every level grounding all of the things that made Napoleon this sui generis figure almost in world history in the context that made it that possible uh, and that he couldn't have been who he was in any other time. That's the important thing. Like his revolutionary military uh, uh, mind, his, his use of speed, as you talked about early on when you talked about the, the way that uh, 18th century militaries work, that was only possible because he was in charge of an army that had basically never existed at a grand scale in Europe before, which was a motivated citizen soldiery who could police themselves and did not need to be, you know, whipped and whipped by a quartermaster to keep them from running away every time they went to take a leak. <laughs> uh, and that gave him this, this extra X, this XP boost <laughs> that no other army could compare with. And that was not his doing, but his genius was recognizing it. Mm-hmm. But at every level, there's an interaction here between the personality and, and the, the conditions that they're working with it. Now that um, we're moving into dangerous ground here, but um, when you try to imagine uh, this era and then you know the later 19th century without Napoleon, w- what does that Ooh. look like? Wow. I mean, I have a hard time seeing the directory end any other way than some sort of coup d'etat just because of its instability, because of the, the, the just the crying out for some sort of figure to resolve the conflict. But I think we can say safely, whoever that figure would have been, uh, whether they would have been some sort of uh, successful restoration effort by, you know, maybe with the help of the British or a different uh, general, it would have been much less uh, successful for uh, France just as a, you know, the French nation is a project, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, I can see a, a restoration of a weak sort of client king, uh, you know, like sort of a British vassal uh, king, which would have made France, would have broken France's power almost overnight and, and led it to like lose its 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 status as the premier power in Europe. Uh, I could see another general uh, taking power. The, the question of Napoleon and and how much he fought. He fought all the time. And obviously he was good at it. And at a certain level, he enjoyed it. He must have. But at another level is that as long as, as that state existed, as long as the, uh, the regicide state of France existed, the powers of Europe were going to have a very vested interest in seeing it destroyed. And I don't know if any other military man who might have taken Napoleon's place would have uh, been able to withstand that. So I'd say either way, France does not become the, the driving force of European social order in the 19th century. I don't know who fills the gap. Maybe the British. I don't know. Yeah, see, that to me is the hard question is who fills the gap. Because yeah. without Napoleon, I'm not sure you get German or Italian unification 
uh, certainly not as quickly or as uh, as forcefully. Yeah. So um, I I guess that means the British would step in, but... I think, but they were such a bunch of contented shopkeepers at that point, you know? Right. And I think that, you know, they're, they've never really excelled at projecting land power on on the continent on the continent no <laughs> um and so i i just that, that to me is a very interesting question and i wanted to get your thoughts on it because someone a listener asked me that and i kind of dodged the question um because it is so hard to imagine uh, i'm ooh, yeah i don't know I, I mean all i can think is I, I just think that the processes that ended up shaping europe i think they still happen because none of this is determined by these relatively happenstance items of what general takes over in which country. Mm-hmm. But they, I think the, the most you can say is they probably happen much more slowly. Right. You know, the process of, of uh, nationalism, of centralization, uh, the breakup of the old order, probably the Industrial Revolution, uh, because it's hard to overstate the effect of the war economy in England in spurring that. It probably all happens, but on a longer timetable. Yeah, I mean, the, the question of industrialization, um, the population of free peasants in Germany is what really drove, like, for instance, the Rhineland uh, industrial boom. And I don't think there would be a population of free peasants in the Rhineland <laughs> if not for yeah, Napoleon. Exactly. So it's just, a, you know, again, it's hard to see, you know, the world taking a totally different course, you know, just because those those forces dragging us into the future are so powerful. Um, but I mean... God, there would have been a lot to, you know, arrest that that speed at which they developed in the 19th century. Yeah. So um, any other stray thoughts? Um, anything you wanted to, to talk about? I think I got out everything I wanted to say. Yeah, I had some points and I think I made them. Yeah, well, I was shooting for half an hour. That's about where we're at. So Perfect. Um, that was Matt Chrisman. Thanks a lot. Thank you. I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. If you want to hear more from Matt, you can find his writing in The Outline, Jacobin Magazine, and Current Affairs. Or, of course, you could listen to his satirical left-wing political podcast, Chapo Trap House. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history. A journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marvelled at the golden face of Tutankhamun, or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. 